Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about helping people into authentic and significant relationship with King Jesus. Good morning. Jesus is here. Uh, we are embarking on um, John, the latter half of John 19. Um, I do so with some fear and trepidation. It's, um, this is a, it's an amazing passage. Um, so you pray for me as I pray for and preach to you. How's that? I want to look into the camera and say welcome and good morning uh, to those of you who are on YouTube uh, currently or Facebook. Um, we're grateful that you're with us. Um, feel free to interact and we'll try to circle back to you with any questions um, or comments. <clears throat> so I'm going to start in chapter 19, uh, verse 16 is where we ended last week. I'm going to pick it up right there um, and open your Bible, scroll, do whatever you're doing. Um, but uh, this is this is powerful. <laughs> it's good. It's a good Sunday. It's a good passage. So Lord Jesus, help us. Um, let me give you a quick recap from last week. Um, last week, we looked at the Jews and how it could be that a group of um, well-meaning um, people that loved the Lord slowly got this lie worked down into their hearts that God had abandoned them, that the Messiah was not coming, that God didn't care about them, that he didn't like them, that he had maybe um, tossed them aside to the point where they were so filled with hatred at Yahweh God that they could yell to, to Jesus, crucify him. So we looked at the journey of going into sort of, the, sort of the, herm, the, the human heart from the perspective of the Jews, how hurt can go to disappointment, to anger, um, to really uh, a bitterness and ultimately hatred. And James likens um, hatred with murder. And what did the Jews do to Jesus? Murdered him. That's right. So that's, that's the, what we looked at. And then we also looked at um, Pontius Pilate and his fear. He had three major failures in his career. Rome had threatened to upend his governorship and end his role as governor. And so the Jewish leaders leveraged uh, Pilate's fear and manipulated him and really blackmailed him into crucifying Jesus. And then we pivoted and kind of went, okay, in what ways do we have lingering hurt inside of us or fear that keeps us from going, doing, and becoming all that God called us to be. You can go back last week and take a listen if you'd like to. Okay, so verse 16 of chapter 19, we pick up and it says, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Okay, so as we move into verse 17, I'm going to give you a couple thoughts on crucifixion. Okay, um, we're going to take a look at this notice that Pilate prepares and affixes um, ultimately to the cross above Jesus's head, but it, it would have been around the necks of one of the Roman soldiers as they walked uh, through Jerusalem. Um, we're going to take a look at these gamblers. There's actually gamblers at the foot of the cross, and there's an, an interesting sort of parallel there. Um, then we're going to take a look at a really precious moment between Jesus um, and his mother uh, at the foot. She's at the foot of the cross. Um, we're going to take a look at darkness falling over the face of the earth. Um, we're going to take a look at, at the final moment when Jesus gives up his spirit. And I want to see if we can actually um, pivot our understanding of that um, from one of defeat to one of victory. And I'll show you how. Um, and then, then we're going to end uh, sort of with this culmination of both the end and the beginning. So I called this uh, King, King Jesus, um, the end and the beginning. So let's, uh, let's talk about crucifixion here just a minute. Um, crucifixion was never a method of capital punishment that was used in the homeland or in Rome. 
okay? Never. So it would never have been used actually in country. It was only used in like these outer providences and areas. Um, And really there, it was only used in the case of slaves or someone who had committed an unthinkable um, crime. Um, so it was, it was punishable uh, by, by Roman punishment if you uh, used crucifixion um, on a, a Roman citizen. Um, it was the most dreaded and feared death in the ancient world. Um, it, Jesus died the death of a slave and of a criminal. And without being overly graphic, I think you at least need to understand um, that Jesus will ultimately carry his cross, probably just the cross beam of the cross, through the streets of Jerusalem. I'll tell you about that. But then they're going to pound that into the uh, uh, vertical cross beam. They're going to pound nails. There's debate whether it's through his palms or through his wrists. I I usually go with wrists. Um, And then they're going to pound a nail through his two feet, and then they hang a person up on the cross. And, And what happens is you die a combination of dehydration and asphyxiation. Okay, so there's, there were cases in history of people lingering on the cross four, five, and six days. Like, it's brutal. It is brutal. Rome knew how to scare the fire out of its inhabitants to keep them in line. Okay, you just have to watch someone die like this for a number of days. So as you're hanging on this cross, um, you have to pull up on the nails and push up on the nails through your feet. And you have to do that so you can fill your lungs with air. So you go, <gasps> and then the person would collapse back down, hanging on the way to the nail. So this is, this is, uh, utterly gruesome, utterly horrible. The pain is intolerable. Um, and and you, you just have to understand um, Rome mastered maintaining civil control over its country. Um, last thing I think I want to say is right outside, um, I can't like fully substantiate it, but if you look at history, archaeology, and the biblical narrative, there's a place um, called the skull um, in Aramaic or Hebrew. It's called Golgotha. In Latin, it's called Calvary, but it's, um, it's a hill right outside the old Jewish wall of Jerusalem. It's a stone quarry, so it's where um, under Mosaic law, they would have taken people to stone them to death, um, but Rome would have taken up taking people there to crucify him. And that's the place to which they're going to take Jesus um, to crucify him. Okay, so Jesus is marching through the streets as we're about to pick up on this. um, And literally the Lamb of God, innocent, um, betrayed, alone, and we are marching with him um, to his death. Lord Jesus, as we read this, would you bring revelation to us? Would you help us to see, know, and understand? Father, would you allow us to put ourselves into this place? Lord, would you change us and form the person of Jesus in us? In the mighty name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's pick up um, right there after verse uh, 16. So, the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic or Hebrew is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him. And with two others, uh, one on each side, and Jesus was in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic or Hebrew, Latin and Greek. 
the chief priests and the Jews uh, protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Okay, so uh, when someone was crucified, um, they would have taken the crossbar, they would have um, tied Jesus to it, possibly pounded the nails in, but probably pounded the nails once he got to the hill. He's going through the city, and there would have been four Roman guards that would have traveled with him through the city. One, two, three, and four. And one of the Roman guards would have held a placard that would have said what Jesus was accused of. And Rome did this for two reasons. They did this, number one, to scare the fire out of everybody from disobeying, okay? Like, don't disobey. And they went up and down the streets. Via Dolorosa went all through Jerusalem, all the way out the gates, up to this hill called the Skull or Golgotha or Calvary. And the other reason they did it is under the slim chance that someone was being punished to ca- or being sentenced to capital punishment and they were innocent, by having the Roman guard hold this sign saying what they were guilty of, someone could come forward and say, I didn't, I didn't see that. So that was the idea of sort of Roman law. So uh, the the thing that I want you to get here, though, is you have um, Pilate, who is, uh, in many ways, he's been uh, manipulated, he's been blackmailed into um, killing Jesus. He thinks Jesus is totally innocent. And while he acquiesces on that, it's like he bows up and writes this thing kind of in the face of the Jewish leaders. He's like the king of the Jews. But what's fascinating is he writes it in Hebrew and Latin and in Greek. And if you step back for just a minute, I think we We'd have to go, okay, what is this detail about? And the only thing I can sort of get my head around here in this moment is you've got this idea that the Hebrews brought worship and faith um, into and relationship with one true creator God into the world. That's their great gift uh, to the world. Um, Latin, uh, the Romans taught the world the art of law and government. Uh, Greek, um, in, in Greece, they taught the world of beauty, of form and function. And so when I read this, it's just, it's fascinating and it's no accident because you have the three of the leading influencers of the then known world and Pilate writes it in Hebrew, um, in Latin and in Greek. And I think say, this is my son. This is King Jesus. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And in him is all beauty of form and function. In him is all kingdom, law, government. He is instilling the kingdom of God, uh, unseen and eternal. Um, And then he is introducing uh, into humanity relationship with this creator God. So there's this like, there's this huge sermon that Jesus or God is even preaching by what's written on this little placard that ends up being nailed above Jesus's head on the cross. Okay, let's keep going. Um, I'm in verse, do not write the king of the Jews. And it's really funny to me that Pilate like bows up on this 21. The chief priests and the Jews protested to Pilate. He's just acquiesced to kill a guy, right? An innocent man, God of heaven and earth. And yet he's he's gonna bow up on this. They said, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, so by crucified, that's the act of pounding the nails um, into his hands and into his feet, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot, which is like dice, Um, who will get it. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Okay, 
so let's, let's try to get ourselves here in this moment. You have 2.5 million Jews who have gathered in Jerusalem for Passover. There's people everywhere. The streets would have been filled with people. So when Jesus is paraded through Jerusalem down the Via Della Rosa, remember he's been flogged. So all the, all the skin is off his black back. He's got a crown of thorns on. He's been battered by the Roman guards. So he would have been swollen all through his face. And he makes it up to this hill. They crucify him, pounding nails in, pounding nail, pounding nail, and then they stand it up and chunk, he goes into place and he is now there. And, and then what we have is we have this, um, this shocking indifference of these four Roman soldiers who are standing at the foot of the cross casting dice for his clothes, okay? So a, um, <clears throat> a Jewish man would have had five article of, articles of clothes, would have had shoes, would have had a turban, would have had a girdle, um, would have had an inner tunic, and then this big outer robe. So they, they chose, they took cast lots, they each picked one of the items of clothing, but there was one that was left over. And, you know, I love John. Um, John's the writer of this. He's the source of this information. Um, and I love John because the question to me I'm asking, even as I'm reading this this morning, is what is John including in this that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't include, and why did he include it? it. Okay. So I'm going, okay, father, speak to me, help me understand, help me see and know. And so what happened is, uh, and, and then it even says, um, this garment was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now I'm not going to cross reference back, but if we did, and I took you to the Mosaic law, um, what you would find is the high priest wore an inner tunic that was seamless. Okay. Um, so what that means is whoever was weaving it, they would have woven it all the way around and then back into itself so that it was seamless. You couldn't even find where the seam was. So Jesus, and what John is beginning to say here, um, is uh, they, they took his clothes, they divided it, the undergarments remaining, so you got this inner tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, and it's very important that it's woven from top to bottom. And it's exactly uh, the directions given in the old covenant for the high priest. So what is being introduced here is this idea um, that, that Jesus actually becomes our high priest, okay? And I know this is if you're, if you're like not a church person or you're not a Jesus person, you've never heard somebody talk like this, you might be like, what is, what is this guy talking about? Um, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the high priests were the ones who would go into the temple to the Holy of Holies once a year, and they would take blood of a lamb, and they would put it on the altar and splash it on the sides of the altar. And in doing so, um, that was the Ark of the Covenant, in doing so, um, the, the sin of the people was forgiven for that calendar year. Follow me? So what John is actually beginning to suggest here is he's preaching without even preaching. He's, he's giving truth without fully giving it. But he's, he's cross, if you wanted a cross-reference, you could look at Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15, it, it unfurls sort of Jesus as our high priest. But what John is beginning to reveal here is this is Jesus, the high priest. So the high priest was the most respected one in Israel. He would only go into the presence of God one time. And so what John's beginning to unfurl is this idea that this is King Jesus, the high priest. He is going to go in through the veil um, into the very presence of God, and he's going to take blood, and he's going to splash it and pour it on top of the altar and cover sin for all time. So, so what John's beginning to actually say here is, this is King Jesus, the high priest. This is King Jesus, Yahweh God, and he is going to go in and make a way so that you and I can actually go into the presence of God. Follow me? 
Okay, let's keep going. Um, I, I think the other thing that, that you have to like, um, you have to get, and I, I can't even like fully get my head totally around it, but the indifference of these soldiers to cast lots for the clothes while this man is right next to them. I mean, you get this idea that they're kneeling on the ground, they're casting lots for this inner tunic while Jesus is hanging there, struggling for every breath. So you get this idea of um, indifference. And if there's anything that I would actually look at us, um, and I was saying now America, today, right now, in our current time, it's that largely, and I'm not saying everyone, but largely we are indifferent to the person of Jesus. Largely, we are indifferent to the person of God. And, and so you have these, these four soldiers who are, are gambling at the feet of Jesus, if you will. And, and I want to pivot on something because I think it's powerful. There's a guy named um, Stuttered Kennedy. Um, he was a British poet, and, and this is what he actually wrote. Listen with me. And sitting down, they watched him there, the soldiers did. There while they played at dice. He made his sacrifice and died upon the cross to rid God's world of sin. He was a gambler too, my Christ. He took his life and threw it for a world redeemed. And ere the agony was done, before the westering sun went down, crowning that day with its crimson crown, he knew that he had won. If we shift back to this idea of Jesus as the great high priest, if you look at the Latin Vulgate translation, um, priest actually uh, translates um, uh, pontifex, and it translates to bridge builder. And so I think what John is even mining out of this moment is this is Jesus, the great bridge builder. This is Jesus, the way maker. This is Jesus, the lamb of God. This is Jesus who breaks through your depression and your suffering and your anxiety. This is Jesus who heals what's been broken. This is Jesus who resurrects the dead. This is Jesus who heals the brokenhearted. This is the king who once and for all is actually going to break into the temple. And in just a minute, we're going to see that the actual curtain that separates all humans from the presence of a holy God is going to be rent. And when it rents, what he's saying is the presence of God no longer now dwells in buildings made by human hands. It now dwells in those of you and those of us who are willing to give our lives to King Jesus. And we become the carriers of the presence of the King. We become the ones who howls and roll with him. So it's, it's funny. This is even a silly thing, but I never like to call um, a, uh, an auditorium in which a church meets a sanctuary. You get this idea, oh, well, God dwells in the sanctuary. We're about to find out. He stopped dwelling in the sanctuary a long time ago. He now dwells in, raise your hand, the sanctuary. You are the sanctuary. So you become this carrier, this temple of the holy God. And so this God, the high priest dying on this cross at this moment, guys casting dice for his clothing, becomes the one who is penetrating sin and death and hell and shame and guilt and all separation from God for all time, breaking through so that we can make a way not only into the presence of God, but the presence of God can then come out of that temple and then live inside of us. 
And if we as people would actually, uh, it's like the cry of my heart, um, not only for me, for my wife, for my family, for my kids, but for us as a church, is that we would grasp the fullness and the depth and the breadth of what Jesus paid so that we can take up our place as sons and daughters of the King. Because when you know who you are and your identity is fixed and firm in him, when temptations come, you're like, I'm just not that interested. And when uh, things come that, that, you know, to get you to go this way or that way or to become or resort, revert back, if you will, to your baser self, you just go, I just don't care because I know who I am in Jesus. And all of a sudden what you do is as you're a mother or a father or a business owner or a worker, you're in college or whatever you are, a roommate, all of a sudden you become um, sort of the greatest common denominator and all people are actually given the opportunity to rise up and take their place with you in the kingdom. So you become this like change agent in your neighborhood, in your work, in your family, wherever you are. And and psychology always tells us that if one person is willing to define themselves at a higher level and stay defined at that level, what happens to everybody else in the system? They'll rise. So, so God has, literally, he's saying in this moment, I don't live in a building anymore. I don't dwell in a house. It doesn't matter. What matters is you who are the temple, who are the sanctuary, and now the presence of God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, Lord of the universe, now comes in and dwells inside of you. And then he eject, injects us into the world system so that we can call people to this revelation of who God is showing his great love, showing his great sacrifice, showing the depth of his compassion so that they will actually rise and meet him. It's like, oh my goodness. The bridge builder, the way maker, the lamb of God. Verse 25, near the cross, of Jesus stood his mother. Who's his mother? His mother's sister, that would have been Salome. Uh, That's the mother of James and John. I I don't want to linger here, but I at least want to say, if those of you who know your Bible, and if you don't, fact check me, but um, those of you who know your Bible, Salome actually went to Jesus at one point and said, hey, my guys, James and John, my sons, they're really great, and they're something special, and can they sit at your, you know, right hand in the kingdom of God? And, And Jesus busted her chops. I mean, like, I mean, he gives her this crazy rebuke, like one of the rebukes of the rebukes in the New Testament, in my opinion. But who's at the cross? May we all be marked with how to respond to a rebuke. Now, let me ask a question here. Where are the disciples? Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Salome, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. Where are the disciples? How many disciples are left? There's 11, right? Because we got Judas who bailed out and betrayed him. Okay, so we have 11 disciples. We're about to find out that John is there. So now we have 10 other disciples. Where are the other 10 disciples? Right? And I've heard theologians, I've heard a number of theologians actually try to say that well, it wasn't dangerous for a woman to stand at the cross and let them know that he, they were. I go, yeah, right. 
Do you think it was ever safe to associate and become a friend of someone who was sentenced to die by Rome? They're, they're in danger of actually becoming an accomplice of Jesus, and Rome could just as quickly turn on who? The way I read this is we've got four courageous women in John, and everybody else who had seen and given their lives to this Jesus is gone. The ones who were raised from the dead, the ones who were healed of leprosy, the ones whose hearts and relationships were healed, the ones who had come to know him as God and as, as Yahweh and as Lord and as Savior and his friend, and they have all run and hid. I mean, you hear me? So you, you get these four courageous women. And I, I mean, it is fascinating to me that the ones who endured with Jesus to the end are four women. And we're going to see next week, the one he tells he's resurrected first is to a woman. Interesting. Okay, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved. Who's the disciple whom he loved? If there's anyone we want to be like, that's it. Standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Okay. You got Jesus, and he's on this hill. He's got a guy being crucified on each side of him. He's got four Romans below him who are indifferent. Um, he was crucified at about 9 a.m. And from 9 a.m. to 12 noon, it's broad daylight. And everybody going by, two and a half million people in the whole vicinity could see him suffering. And then at 12 noon, this thick darkness, it doesn't say it in John, it says it in the other three Gospels, um, covered the earth. And, and it it, it, this was like night. It was like fully dark, fully night. It covered the earth from 12 noon um, to 3 p.m. And you have, you have Jesus who is hanging on this cross. And you, you've got to understand, so feet are, have been pinned with a nail. Um, wrists have been pinned with a nail. And every breath he's going, he, he, he has to pull up on the iron nails, right? So he has to go. And then he sags back down into it. So he's got this, um, he's got the physical pain that he has endured and is actively enduring. And then let's take a step back from there. He is now absorbing the wrath of God for all humanity, for all sin, for all time. So, so you got to like, I mean, think of this in a, in, a, in a tandem way. Think of this like he is absorbing all of God's anger and disappointment and, and discipline and punishment for your sin and for mine. Everything you've done in the past, everything you're going to do today, everything you do from now to the moment you transition to eternity. He's absorbing that. He's absorbing all of God's anger and fury on abuse and hatred and neglect and starvation. And I mean, you just name it. Every single thing that has ever happened on planet earth that's dishonored the goodness of God and the heart of God for his creation. He is absorbing all of this negativity and all of this, um, all of this fury and wrath of God. So he has the external pain that he is in. <gasps> And then he has this internal pain because he is becoming the lamb in this moment, just like the high priest would take and would cut the, the throat of the lamb, drain the blood and put the blood onto the altar to make a way into the presence of God for you and for me, for the people back then. Jesus is literally shedding his blood, becoming the very lamb of God. So what he is enduring physically is absolutely brutal, the most heinous pain known to humankind, period, forever. And then what he is enduring internally as a man fully 
fully God and fully man who has never once been separated from Yahweh God is suddenly absorbing all of God's wrath and anger for all of humanity and all of our sin for all time, okay? So he is, in, he is under such duress hanging there and he pauses everything and calls a timeout. Now let's see what he says. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother standing there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here's your son. Now, if you can, if you can get your mind and your heart into the tenderness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the loving kindness of Jesus, the long suffering of Jesus, the ability of Jesus to look past his own pain and his own difficulty and his own suffering and to engage with the suffering of his mom, his earthly mom for a moment and to recognize that she doesn't understand everything and right now she is watching her son die before her eyes. There's some of you moms in the room that have actually lost sons and she is standing there watching it happening. And she doesn't understand, and Jesus calls this time out. And Jesus has other brothers that he could have actually entrusted uh, Mary to their care, but they didn't know Jesus yet. They hadn't surrendered their life to Jesus yet. And so he looks at John, the one who was most intimate with him, the only one of the disciples who didn't abandon him at the cross. And he says, John, behold your mother and woman. That's not disrespectful. It's a very respectful and tender word. But in that moment, what he's doing is he's actually separating a step back from her. And he's saying, dear woman, um, deeply loved and respected, behold your son. And the brokenness in your heart that you're having in this moment, may it be that God would use John the Beloved to bring healing and restoration in the rest of your journey. Church history has it, and so does tradition, that John and Mary uh, lived in Ephesus, a little town in Turkey, for a while, and they both died there of old age and were buried there. Mary journeyed with John. John took her into his household. I love this heart, but you get to actually see who this Jesus is. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Let's see, before I start reading 28, I want to, I want to make mention here because John does not talk about the darkness. Every one of the other gospels talks about the darkness and it says from 12 noon to 3 p.m. So, so Jesus only hung on the cross six hours. Okay, now go back to most people hang on the cross three, four days. So he, he only was there six hours, the first three hours daylight, the second three hours darkness. And, and I would actually propose to you that this darkness was the final miracle of Jesus. Um, if you look at a calendar, Passover, um, which is the, what they're celebrating on this very day, um, always happened at the time of a full moon. So logistically, scientifically, I guess a solar eclipse was not possible. So this is literally a miracle of darkness. It actually, um, it lends itself back to Moses instituting darkness and in exodus over the land of Egypt. And I, I would look at this probably several ways. Um, I think it's a symbol, uh, first of all, because I think people love darkness more than light. It's like, ah. Uh, 
I think it's also a symbol or it's a, it reveals a, this, this loving, compassionate God that Jesus knew because, or that, yeah, that Jesus knew this Yahweh God. Because I think after three hours where Jesus had been on public display, God sovereign, God almighty, God Yahweh then said, this is my son whom I love. And as I pour my wrath on him, I'm going to shield him. I'm going to hide his shame and his nakedness. And while I exact my wrath and judgment on him and he becomes the Lamb of God for you and for me for all time, I'm going to shield him and I'm going to hide him and I'm going to cover him and I'm going to protect him. And I think you get to see the loving nature of a Yahweh God in that moment. And then I think finally that you can't read this about the darkness without thinking about many of us get stuck in darkness, don't we? If you're stuck in your own depression, if you're stuck in your own anxiety, if you're stuck in some addiction, if you're stuck in a broken marriage or a broken relationship, I want to just tell you this is the king who was stuck in darkness and light is about to penetrate through and break the darkness. So wherever you are and whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing, there is hope and life and peace and joy on the other side of this because of what Jesus is about to do. Okay, let's keep reading. I'm in verse 28. <clears throat> Later, so this is coming to the end of the, th this is coming to the 3 p.m. So he's now been there almost six hours, knowing that everything had now been finished um, this is really important. I'm going to come back to it, but you're going to hear me say a lot of times when I preach the finished work of the cross, the finished work of the cross. And this is what I'm talking about, okay, what we're reading right now. And so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, okay, let's pause right there. Um, have you ever taken like red wine vinegar out of your cooking cabinet when you're thirsty? So what are they doing to Jesus? Even this is mocking. Even this is hatred. When you drink, drink a big old slug of red wine vinegar and tell me it doesn't go, right? You're thirsty more. And then John is also preaching another whole message here, but it's, it's unusual that it says they lifted it up on a stalk of hyssop plant. And so what John is like so artfully like um, revealing here in this moment is if you go back to Exodus, back to Moses, back to the first Exodus, Jesus is leading the second and final Exodus to freedom. Moses led the people to, to uh, freedom from Pharaoh's slavery. Jesus is leading the people to freedom from sin and death. But Moses was instructed by Yahweh God to kill a lamb, take the blood, take a hyssop branch, stick it in the blood, and then put that blood on the door, on the, on the side post and the top of the doorway. So when now, New Testament, Jesus on the cross, Jesus is here, you've got the four women, you have John somewhere nearby, you've got guys gambling for his clothes, that's now passed. He says, behold, I thirst. They take the same hyssop branch and they lift it up to him on a sponge. And he is saying again, fulfilling, I am the lamb of God. I am the blood that is gonna be over you and beside you, before you and behind you. I am this lamb of God. I am the king 
king. I am the deliverer. And I have come that you might have life and life abundant. I have come that you might have freedom and freedom abundant. So when John puts it in here, this hyssop plant, soaked sponge, he is saying, this is the Lamb of God. This is the high priest. This is King Jesus. This is God incarnate. When Jesus had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I I didn't say it, but I, I think I need to, let me just back up just a touch and say one additional thing. Passover was called Passover because the angel of death was coming to um, uh, Pharaoh's house. Um, And so Moses had all the people take blood, put it over the doorpost like that. And as long as they were covered by the blood, then that angel of death would pass over their house. Got it? Pass. Very literal, right? Okay, so what is happening here is, again, this this connection to the old and the new. It's like this bringing together, um, and it is why we no longer sacrifice animals, because Jesus became the Lamb of God. I mean, he became it. Okay. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. All right. There's more here than is understandable, and we're going to try to open it. Um, so so here's, here's how it goes. Um, first of all, if Jesus died after six hours, and most people take three, four, or five days, tell me about the death of Jesus. Did anybody kill him? No, 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 no. He surrendered his life. He gave his life. No one took it. If they had taken it, he'd have lasted three, four, or five days and he'd have died. But he actually chose when he would die. Okay. Um, <clears throat> he dismissed his spirit, is, is what one translation said. He bowed his head and he dismissed his spirit, bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Um, at 3 p.m., so this is now 3 p.m., over in the temple, which is just across the city walls and a few blocks over, guess what's happening? At this exact moment. 3 p.m., those lambs are being killed. At the exact same moment that Jesus is saying, it is finished, the lambs are being killed, their blood is being poured out, the high priest is getting ready to walk into uh, the Holy of Holies and take that blood and put it on the Ark of the Covenant. So you again have this old and new uh, fulfillment. And then in 1930, when Jesus says, it is finished, this is like, um, it's actually hard to get your head around um, because in Greek it's um, tetelestai, uh, tetelestai. So, so if you look at the other three um, gospel narratives, it says Jesus cried out in a loud voice at the end, but nobody knows what it was said or no, they don't write it. And, and John just said he cried out in a loud voice, tetelestai, or it is finished. So when you, when you lay those four narratives atop one another, I think what is being revealed is you have uh, Jesus who at the very end cried out in a loud voice and yelled, tetelestai. So what's happening here in this moment, and you have to understand, is there's a, uh, in, in Greek, the idea is that when a man has worked a full day, he has been successful, he comes to the end, it's saying, I rest, I finish, I actually lay my head back into the pillow and I celebrate a, a, a day full of work and success, okay? So the word here that's being used is not that Jesus is like hanging in defeat. What's actually happening here is Jesus is going, 
he's, he's pulling up on these iron nails. He's pushing up on the iron nails here. And he's going to, with everything in him, he's going to rise up and he's going to say, Tetelestai! He's actually saying, it is finished. I have won. Okay, this is not like, oh, I have, I'm dying now. Ugh. No, 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 no. With everything in him, he is calling upon all of everything inside of him, all of his humanity, all of his Godness inside of him. And he is actually saying in this moment, I have reigned victorious. I have conquered death. I have conquered hell. I have beaten the grave. I have opened up the door to freedom. I have broken suffering and sickness and pain and abuse. And I have ended famine and hunger. And then there's this like tension that we as New Testament believers enter into because it's the now and not yet of the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of God is here. It is the finished work of the cross. The victory is his, the victory is ours. And it's the not yet of we haven't quite crossed over into the perfection of the next kingdom of God or the kingdom of God eternal. Does that make sense? So what you have here is Jesus not falling in defeat. Because I think a lot of people read it that way, but rather he is rising up. In fact, I, I hate to even say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's the only thing I could think of. Um, some of y'all who like the movie Braveheart, he's copying Jesus. You know the end where he yells? Freedom. He's copying Jesus. Okay? Except he died. <laughs> Great. William Wallace. Sayonara. Jesus is saying, I've beaten death. He's even saying here, I, have re- I am returning. And at this moment, what the other gospels actually say is the earth actually shook. So in this moment, the, the Pilate has turned his back. The Roman government has turned their back. All of the Jewish leaders have turned their back. But in this moment, when Jesus is yelling, die," all the earth is shaking. So earthquakes are ravaging through Palestine at this moment. Great rocks are ruptured in two. And even if the people don't cry out. What's happening is the creation is bowing before its creator and it is rupturing saying the king of glory has died. The king of glory has won. The king of glory has conquered. And even it says that men and women, if you look at Luke, who had died in the faith, resurrected and came walking back in Jerusalem in their grave clothes. What happened is the power of God was released and revealed in this tetelestai in such a powerful moment that all of heaven and earth acknowledged even when the people lived in denial and refused to see. It was this moment when the king of glory said, I have won. If you open it up, he's saying, I have succeeded. I have not failed. I have completed. I have won. I am the champion. The race is finished. I've assigned the work God's given me to do. And I believe in this moment, all, all hell is coming against Jesus and he is experiencing all the wrath of God. And at that moment, when he says it's finished, I believe that his spirit and God's spirit were reunited into one. It's done. It's done. At that same moment, the curtain in the temple, and some people say it was eight inches or 12 inches thick. I don't know. It was really thick. But the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, so nobody could go in there. If you went in there, you died. There's even legend that says people would tie a rope around the high priest's foot because if he died in there, they didn't want to go in and get him, so they want to pull him back out, you know? I mean, really, that's real legend. It's not biblical history. It's legend. But 
That's what they said, and it makes sense. Um, so in this moment, though, as Jesus is yelling, Tetelestai, that what's happening at the temple is you've got all these people who are killing these animals. They're taking the blood. They're getting ready to go into the Holy of Holies. And you can just imagine as the high priest, which was Caiaphas, was getting ready to walk into the Holy of Holies with his, um, with his bowl of blood to make atoning sacrifice for all of the people for all time, the entire curtain, which would have been 25-ish feet tall, rent or ripped from top to bottom. It's eight or 10 inches thick. And he's standing there and this curtain goes. And what that symbolizes and signifies was the presence of Jesus then erupts from the temple. And he's saying, I don't live in a temple anymore. I now live in you if you're willing to surrender your life to him. And so in this moment, as the earth is shaking, rocks are splitting, fissures are forming, people are getting up out of graves and walking back into Jerusalem. Read Luke if you don't believe me. The temple is being torn. All fear and trembling is released upon people. Darkness is breaking. And so you get this idea at 3 p.m. as Jesus says, Tetelestai, that the darkness which has been on the earth for three hours is suddenly ruptured and sunlight breaks through again. And you get this idea of creation out of nothing in the beginning. God spoke to the nothing and the darkness and he created something and you have darkness again and he's now recreating us new in Christ Jesus because those who are in Christ are new creations, right? The old has gone and the new has come and so all of creation like Tetelestai, I have won. <clears throat> Let me see if I can pivot something here. I don't know if I can, but I'm going to try. I'm a... Uh, I'm a landscaper, so I notice plants and dirt and stuff like that. And I'm also a surfer, so I notice the water. And at this time of year, uh, the crepe myrtle leaves start falling. You ever notice that? Guess what's happening? Fall's coming. And you may not notice, but the water just tipped back at a couple degrees. I'm like, ooh, I feel the water. Fall's coming. For three years, Jesus has been saying to all of Palestine, to all of his disciples, to all of his followers, that there is a fulcrum point that is coming. There is a fulcrum point in history that is actively happening. And he's been saying, the winds of change are here. The leaves are falling off the crepe myrtle, if you will. The water temperature just began to tip cold again. He's saying things are changing. Uh, and what he's actually beginning to release is in every single area, as Jesus lived and died, everything changed. So let me just give you some examples. Um, in Roman rule and Greek rule at this time, Time, um, the, uh, the essence of what everyone um, sought to attain was personal hubris, pride, and grandiosity. And in this fulcrum point, Jesus actually introduces the idea that the greater is humility, not pride. You follow me? All of time has been counting uh, down to what? The life of Jesus. And from this fulcrum point, all of time is now counting up to the return of the king. 
all of history transitioned on this one fulcrum point. You get this idea of this was the old covenant, now it's the new covenant. It was the Levitical high priest, now it's King Jesus. You get this idea that it was Old Testament sacrificial laws, and now Jesus becomes the one and only sacrifice for you and for me. You get this idea that greatness is defined by pride and um, domineering leadership, and Jesus transitions at this fulcrum point that greatness is now defined by service and not coming um, to be served, but to serve. And so everything in all history for all time transitions on this fulcrum point of this little baby who grew and lived and then died at age 33. And you have this idea that death and suffering and pain and hurt, he has ripped the, the sort of the shroud off of it. And all of those things are beginning to be undone. And you and I have to faithfully walk out the now and not yet of the kingdom as we embrace the reality that this king has come and set us free. And if you don't have your freedom yet, it's because it's not the end of the story. This is the king. Tetelestai. It is finished. Worship leaders, would you all come out? I'm going to quote the scripture and then I'm going to break the bread and pour the juice. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, so this was what we just talked about was 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Remember, he was put on the cross at 9 a.m. It was the dinner the night before when he was betrayed, right? So it all just happened. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Every time you do this, take of it and eat, appropriating my life, my death, and my resurrection. And then he took a pitcher, it would have been wine, probably red wine, we have juice this morning. But he poured it out and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Every time you do this, every time you break bread with one another, break it and pour it out in remembrance of my blood, the blood of the new covenant that I shed on that cross with my final tetelestai. Father, as we come to the table this morning to eat the bread and drink the juice, Father, would you take these common elements and would you set them apart in such a way that we are forever marked and impacted by the price you paid that day. So we, you paid the price we couldn't pay. You died the death we couldn't die. You gave it all to make a way, to make us the literal houses and sanctuaries of your person and your presence. Father, we love you.
because you first loved us. Amen. Ushers, if you guys would come forward, Phil and Patty and others. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do three stations this morning. Uh, if you're seated in, seated in this center station, you're going to go out that way. And you're going to come down. You're going to come up here and get the bread. And it's all gluten-free bread, by the way, uh, bread and juice. And then you're going to go back to your seat. Um, if you're over here, we have possibly Roger and Ann are going to be over here. You're going to come out, go pass by Roger and Ann, and then back to your seat. And then we may have David and Monica over here on this side. But you guys are also going to go out that way, come down by them, and then back to your seat. What I would love for us to do is um, while we're coming up and taking this, let's worship the Lord together. Um, you guys will lead us in something, no doubt. And then I'll say a prayer once everyone has gone through. If you'll hold the elements, I'll say a prayer and we'll celebrate together. Front rows, why don't you stand up and we can start.
Father, as we take these common elements, may we appropriate the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus, our Lord, into our sanctuary, our body. And may we be found as people where you are living in us and through us. As we take this, say with me, Tetelestai, take and eat and drink. Amen. Would those who are on our prayer team this morning maybe come up front and be available for prayer. If you've got anything, you've got an emotional need, a mental need, a relational need, prayer for healing, whatever you need prayer for, we'd love to pray with you. Let me also take a risk on, on this day. Um, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is there anyone here, either online or in person, and I, I'm intentionally keeping your eyes open. God, Jesus makes several statements about acknowledging him before people. We're all Jesus people. If you listen to me preach, you know I'm a Jesus people. Is there anyone in here who go out, I, I want to give my life to Jesus today? Would you be willing to raise your hand, anybody? Say, today's the day. If you're online and you want to give your life to Jesus, would you say something? I'm not missing anybody, am I? Okay. Well, we're going to be up here. I'm going to be up here if you want to come and talk. We'd love to pray with you. I'm going to dismiss us with a prayer, and then can you all lead us in one final song at the end? Okay. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. And Father, I pray for this body at this time that we would be a group of Tetelestai believers who live in the finished work of the cross, who know that you paid it all because we couldn't, and you made a way, and the King of glory now lives inside of us. Father, as we go from this place, may we know your blood beside us and over us and in us. And may we be sharers of hope and joy and life abundant with everyone we meet. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. They're going to close us in a song. Come for prayer if you'd like. We love you. And we'll see you next week. Sacrifice, so freely.
Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.